0: Welcome to HDA's Redefining Workplace podcast, where we'll talk with experts about all things related to office design in the age of COVID 19 while keeping CREs up to date with new insights as they emerge. I'm Melissa Pacey, principal at HDA in our San Francisco office, and super excited to be your host today. Joining me today is Haley Nelson, an interior designer in our Santa Monica office. Haley and I are going to introduce a webinar that she recently hosted with Carrie Ann from our Minneapolis office. Hey, Haley. Hey, Melissa. Could you tell us who took part in the webinar that you hosted last week? Yes, yeah, so in addition to Ariane, who you
1: mentioned is our sustainability director here at HGA, we also partnered with the Pruitt Center for Mindfulness and Well-being at the University of Wisconsin-Superior and presented with Randy Barker, who's the Interim Director of Student Health and Counseling Services,
0: and Lori Twoman, who is the Program Manager for the Pruitt Center. That's so cool. How did that partnership form between HGA and the Pruitt Center?
1: Yeah, it was actually a really good partnership because at HGA, you know, we're a research-driven design firm, and we really believe that enduring, impactful design comes from deep insight into people and how we can help them thrive. The Pruitt Center promotes and enhances the science and practice of mindfulness and well-being at the University of Wisconsin-Superior and in the surrounding community, and their permanent well-being model illustrates the fundamental building blocks necessary for human thriving and was a really great framework for us to illustrate some of our research. Additionally, Lori is Arianne's mom, so
0: she's been exposed to a lot of this thinking throughout her life that really paved the way for this to be a great partnership. That's awesome. And so my last question is, why do you think that this webinar will help our listeners today?
1: One of the big takeaways that I hope that everyone who listens comes away with is that we really have the power to control the way that we react to trauma and to stress and the disruption that this whole pandemic has sort of created for all of us, and that we really can build our personal resilience to come out stronger on the other side.
0: Thanks so much, Haley. Before we transfer over to the webinar, please also feel free to open the slides that correspond to the webinar under the post for this podcast on our website.
2: Thank you all for joining us this morning, um, or afternoon, depending on where you're located. Uh, we are excited for this partnership between HGA and the University of Wisconsin-Superior's Pruitt Center for Mindfulness and Well-Being um, to share a little bit more about this topic um, and how research can inform us uh, when it comes to thriving at work, even amidst a pandemic. So we'll begin with introductions, so you can get to know your presenters. My name is Ariane Loxo. I'm sustainability director at HGA.
1: I'm Haley Nelson, a senior interior designer at HGA.
3: I'm Randy Barker. I'm the interim director of health counseling and well-being at the University of Wisconsin-Superior.
4: And I'm Lori Twalmer. i the program manager for the Pruitt Center for Mindfulness and Well-Being at UWS.
2: So if you aren't familiar with HGA, um, we are a national architecture and engineering firm. Um, We are multidisciplinary. So we have all the disciplines you can imagine to put together a commercial building project in multiple sectors from corporate to arts community, higher education, healthcare, government, we do energy and infrastructure work. And our values include curiosity, empathy, doing the hard work, seeking originality, and leaving a legacy. And these are office locations uh, in the US. And I just wanna point out that the University of Wisconsin Superior, who we're partnering with today, is located closest to our Minneapolis office, um, highlighted in yellow.
3: Um, On August 27th, 2018, uh, the Pruitt Center for Mindfulness and Well-Being was established and open at the University of Wisconsin-Superior. And our mission at the Pruitt Center is to promote and enhance the science. So anything that comes out of our center, any type of information, training, and workshop, we really pride ourselves on making sure that it's science-based. And we also add in the practice of mindfulness and well-being, we really look at well-being as skills really learning skill sets and with any skill it does require practice and within our mission we also include and serve three different populations. First and foremost our students right they're the reason why we get up in the morning and to go to work and we also serve our faculty and staff and the reason why we that was so important is when we looked at the science if we truly wanted to enhance our students well-being we had to start with our faculty and staff and then lastly, we included our surrounding community. When we looked at this information, we thought it was too vital important not to share with as many people as possible.
1: So for today's agenda, <clears throat> excuse me, um, we're going to spend about 45 minutes talking about the science behind trauma, stress, and, and how we deal with change. We're going to introduce the permanent model of well-being and discuss some research that supports how we can thrive at work even during a global pandemic. We're planning to leave 15 minutes um, at the end of the hour for questions and discussions. So if you have a question during the presentation, please use the Q and A panel to add yours. You can upvote any others that you're also interested in. We will also be recording this session and it'll be available after the presentation. So before we begin, I'd like to invite Lori to lead us in a grounding in exercise. Yeah, so
4: grounding in is a wonderful way of transitioning from where we were prior to right now to being here now. So inviting you to close your eyes if you're comfortable with that, and if not, choosing a soft gaze somewhere in front of you. And just bringing your awareness to your breath. Feeling the air enter your nostrils. Expanding your belly and your chest. And then deflating your chest and your belly and exiting your nostrils. Just noticing what's present right now. Not needing to change anything. Just being here now. Letting go of where we just were. Letting go of anticipating what we have coming up next. And just being right here, right now. Perhaps you notice some sounds around you. Perhaps you notice thoughts come in because we're human. We probably have thoughts arising. Just noticing and then letting them go. Bringing that attention or awareness back to your breath or sounds around you. whatever, Whatever it is that helps you feel present right now. And we'll finish with taking a few breaths together. So inhaling through your nostrils, feeling your chest and belly expand, exhaling, inhaling like a balloon, exhaling, deflating the balloon. Inhaling and exhaling and inhaling together. And exhaling, and one more time, inhaling through your nostrils, and exhaling. Going ahead and starting to wiggle your fingers and toes. And when you feel ready, opening your eyes and rejoining the
1: space. Okay, thank you, Laurie. So first, we're going we're gonna to dive into a little bit of the science background here. So this is a diagram of the brain, and as an interior designer, I am by no means an expert in neuroscience, but I found it's helpful to have a general understanding of the primary areas of the brain and how it developed, so that we can better understand how it impacts our experiences. This model was developed by Paul McLean in the 1960s to understand the structure of the brain in relation to its evolutionary history. So near the, the base of the brain is the brain stem and the cerebellum, which are parts of the reptilian brain. You can also think of this as our instinctual brain. It's the part that developed first, and it controls um, some of our most vital functions, such as heart rate, breathing, body temperature, and balance. On top of that area is the hippocampus, the amygdala, and the hypothalamus, which are parts of the limbic brain that first forms in mammals. This is the area of our brain that regulates emotion um, and allows us to create bonds and make value judgments. Lastly, the outer portion of the brain is the neocortex, which is comprised of two large cerebral hemispheres uh, where we developed executive function and cognition. This is our rational and thinking brain, and that's responsible for language, abstract thought, imagination, and consciousness. In simpler terms, you can think of these areas as the fear center, the emotion center, and the thinking center. The brain is pretty amazing. It represents just a mere 2% of our total body weight, but it uses 20% of our total energy every single day. Because of this, wherever it can save energy, it'll try to do so. This is one of the reasons we form habits that are hard to break, or why we carry on running meetings this, the same way, even though we know they may not be that productive anymore. It's just easier for our brains to be lazy. The brain also wants to be able to predict the world around us in order to uncover any dangers. It's really good at taking what we've encountered before and using that as a baseline to predict how things will be in the future. If we can anticipate those events, our, better, our brains are better able to protect us. So to show you how good our brain is at predicting and making sense of the world around us, take a look at the paragraph on the screen. I'll give you a moment to read it. So science has shown us that most people can read sentences like this, as if all the letters were in the right place, as long as the first and last letters are in the right spot. So it's pretty pretty amazing. So now we know more about the areas of the brain and how it acts in its default mode to conserve energy and trying to predict the world around us, but we also have emotions that can influence our behavior. Emotions are strands of chemicals that dictate how we think, feel, speak, and act. When we experience an emotion, it's because chains of neuropeptides are literally changing the chemistry of every cell in our body. You may have heard of some of these, and you can see the recipes for different emotions listed on the screen. Interestingly, um, adrenaline is one, in particular, that can be felt as different emotions. It can be felt as excitement or anxiety, depending on what other chemicals are present. And it's important to manage our emotions because these charged molecules can be stuck in our bodies and they can trigger potentially damaging effects. Trauma can be defined as a situation that violates our familiar ideas and expectations about the world around us and creates a feeling of extreme confusion and uncertainty. I think we can all agree that the current pandemic and the rapidly changing expectations from the world around us would qualify as a traumatic global event. The coronavirus pandemic has turned ordinary activities into risky endeavors first confining us to our homes and exposing healthcare workers to dangerous situations, and now phase changes to protect our safety while trying to return to as much normalcy as we can. You've probably felt some combination of these emotions over the last few months, even if you didn't realize you were experiencing trauma from this crisis. In fact, our brains register any change or disruption as a stressor, even if it's something positive. So even if you don't think you're experiencing trauma, your body can register what is happening around you as such. If you find yourself wondering what day is it more often in the last few months, then you're definitely not alone. Those feelings are a phenomenon called temporal disintegration, and they are a direct result of experiencing trauma. Not only could we characterize the pandemic as a global traumatic event, but it's also created many changes to our environment and our routines. You remember that our brains like to conserve energy, so they really don't like change. In fact, our brains have a finite processing ability when it comes to making changes, and we now know that we have the cognitive processing ability to incorporate only two new changes in our daily lives at any given time if we want those changes to be sustainable. So in a crisis, our brains will revert to our more primitive functions, that reptilian brain from the diagram. You've probably heard of this state as fight, flight, or freeze. You can see in these brain scans from studies on PTSD that a positive or healthy brain on the right is generally uniformly activated. The brain on the left is activated in the deeper regions of the brain, which is shown more clearly in that center side view um, where that brainstem is highlighted. This is the reptilian brain, and it's overactivated in a traumatic event. A perceived threat triggers that fight, flight, or freeze response and increases the production of cortisol and adrenaline, which we saw was a recipe for fear and anxiety. So, when your mind gets stuck in this state, it, it really begins a chain reaction. Fear narrows our field of vision, it becomes harder to see the bigger picture, the positive, creative possibilities in front of you. We can get trapped in this negative pattern of thinking. And as our perspective shrinks, so does our tendency to connect with others. So when we don't have that predictability, we require more mental energy, and when we don't have influence over our conditions, we revert to that fear center, and we can't see clearly and make sound judgments. I mentioned that if we don't manage our emotions and, and our reactions, to revert back to our reptilian brains and it can be damaging. But research is suggesting that those with pre existing psychological conditions, such as generalized anxiety disorder, which is the most common mental illness in the country affecting over 18% of the population, are at a higher risk for experiencing longer term impacts of this pandemic. The United Nations issued a policy brief on COVID 19 and the need for action on mental health that confirms that psychological distress is widespread across the globe. Vulnerable populations may even be at risk for developing post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. However, there is a silver lining to all of this bad news because we have the power to build our own personal resilience in order to combat the mental health issues brought on by the pandemic. And in fact, it actually takes um, a moment of crisis to build our resilience. Frederick Flack developed the law of disruption and reintegration that says that our status quo has to be disrupted in order for us to grow our personal resilience. We can't simply read about it or or listen to other stories. We have to live experiences with trauma and with change and disruption ourselves in order to build the skills we need to thrive. We also know that not all trauma leads to post-traumatic stress symptoms, and that it's possible to experience the phenomenon of post-traumatic growth to mitigate the negative effects of trauma. So next, Randy and Lori will introduce the permanent model of well-being.
3: Thank you, Haley. Um, the permanent well-being model was created and is unique to the Pruitt Center. Um, we use the acronym permanent. And and we like that term because permanent means long-lasting. And that's what we're truly striving for when it comes to well-being. The model consists of nine different constructs of of well-being. And what we really tried to do was embody the whole person, including the mind, body, and spirit of the individual. We're now going to take a moment and go through each domain very quickly.
4: The other thing I like about the permanent Acronym is I think of it as lifelong learning. We're always learning. So I really think that that captures that as well. So the first one is present moment awareness. John Kabat-Zinn says mindfulness is paying attention in a particular way on purpose in the present moment and non judgmentally. So the reason that this is so so important is that we think that mindfulness or present moment awareness is the foundation of everything we do. It's the foundation of our relationships, it's the foundation of our emotions, it's the foundation of our thoughts. If we aren't here right now we aren't aware of what's going on inside of us or outside of us.
3: Emotional intelligence the capacity to recognize our own feelings and those of others to manage our emotions and to interact effectively with others um, emotions matter. Um, someone that has high levels of emotional intelligence is able to recognize what they're feeling. They're able to label what they're feeling. And they're able to regulate the range of emotions from positive to difficult emotions.
4: The third one is relationships. The only thing that really matters in your life are your relationships to other people. Research has shown that the number one predictor of happiness is Our our positive relationships with other people. This is reciprocated relationships, so it's important that it's people who you love who love you back. It's not um, unrequited. the The other thing about relationships that I want to mention is that since we've been living more remotely and working more re- remotely. Um, we, our relationships are important, more important now than ever. And, and I, I don't even like the term, we don't even like the term social distancing. We like the term physical distancing because we are social animals and we love to have our connections.
3: The, the next domain is meaning. Our main motivation for living is our will to find meaning in life. Uh, one of the things that research is showing is our generation right now, me, meaning is the new money, and individuals want to belong and serve to something bigger than themselves. And one of the things that we really pride ourselves on within the Pruitt Center is really to help people to find their calling, what, is it, what they've been put on this earth to do.
4: The next one is achievement. Every worthwhile accomplishment, big or little, has its stages of drudgery and triumphs. A beginning, a struggle, and a victory. Kind of sounds like a hero's journey, right? So the thing about achievement, the late Dr. Rick Schneider talks about willpower and waypower, where willpower is the goals that we set for ourselves. But we often don't talk about how we're going to get to to achieve those goals. And that's where waypower comes in. It's the action that's necessary to reach our achievement. One other thing I want to mention about achievement that often is overlooked is how important it is to savor that achievement. Often we say, well, when I graduate from high school, then I will go to college. And then when I go to college, I will, you know, we, we always set our goalposts They're always changing. So it's really important to savor when we accomplish something, when we have achieved what we've set out to achieve.
3: These next three constructs are what we feel are the pillars of well-being, and and they're not included in in, in any of the other well-being models that we looked at. The first one is needed sleep. Everything you do, you do better with a good night's sleep. Sleep is the opportunity for your body and mind to rest, repair, and rejuvenate. And We know that if we don't get adequate sleep, we're not as creative, we're not as productive, we're not as good as as problem solving. The other thing is is research. It used to be that um, sleep issues, concerns, was really a symptom of mental health disorders. Recent research has shown that uh, not getting adequate sleep is actually the precursor to many mental health disorders.
4: The second one of those pillars is exercise. When it comes to health and well being, regular exercise is about as close to a magic potion as you can get. So some people even consider it a wonder drug. It used to be thought that. That exercising is like taking an antidepressant. When actually what's shown what research has shown now is that not exercising is like taking a depressant. So exercise is a really important thing for your mental as well as your physical well-being. It also um, many people do exercise as is indicated in the picture in community, which is an important part of, of well-being. And Um, So in addition to our mental health and our physical health, it helps our emotional relational health and um, it can be a great stress relief. So it can be done, say, for example, before or after an exam or a big meeting. Um, The other thing I want to mention about exercise is um, it can be done inside or outside. And I love to exercise outside because then I get the fresh air and the nature as well with it, which research has shown is really beneficial for our physical and mental well-being.
3: The next area is nutrition. Uh, Let food be your medicine and medicine be your food. Um, Really, it's the fuel that that really runs the mind and the body, yet we have to be aware of putting in the right fuel. Um, Research has shown that what we eat has a significant impact on the way that we think, feel, and behave.
4: And finally, the last domain in the permanent well-being model is thinking. Habits of thinking need not be forever. One of the most significant findings in psychology in the last 20 years is that individuals can choose the way they think. This is a quote by Dr. Martin Seligman who's at UPAN, and many people consider him the founder of positive psychology, even though its principles have been in place for a long, long time. The thing about the thinking is that we we often can react to things, but when we we stop and think, we actually can choose what our responses are instead of just simply reacting to things and we, what we so what we focus on grows if we're only focusing on problems problems are all we're going to see but if we focus on the good that's happening around us even a pandemic then we'll start to see more of the good doctors David Cooper and Tal Ben-Shahar said when we appreciate the good the good appreciates and this is one thing that that shows that our choices matter
3: and then lastly we look at three steps to looking at enhancing our well-being first is to learn right is to really gain knowledge about well-being but we know that knowledge is not enough well-being needs to be experienced so we also really reinforce the importance of experiencing well-being and then lastly we feel that for it to really deepen for that neuroplasticity to, to, to take place we need to to reflect on that experience now we're going to pass things over to ariana
2: Perfect, so we are going to take a look at workplace well-being within the context of this global pandemic, and we uh, don't really have time to dig into all of these well-being domains, so we are not going to look at the three uh, that they uh, talk about as, as the most fundamental needed, sp- sleep, exercise, and nutrition. However, there's a plethora of research when it comes to those three domains and the workplace, so I would highly recommend you know, doing some Google, Google scholar searching if you're curious. So we'll dive in first to asking the question, well, why does this matter in the workplace? I think for those who are familiar with Gallup studies, um, we've all been shocked by seeing that only 15% of employees globally are engaged in their jobs. And so this engaged means highly involved in and enthusiastic about their work and workplace. You feel like a owner of the work that you're doing. You drive performance and innovation and really move the organization forward. If only 15% of employees globally are engaged, what does that mean for the quality of work output? And 21% um, of companies that have highly engaged employees find they have 21% higher profitability. So this matters from a financial standpoint as well. And then at companies that employees feel support their well-being. Um, 89% of employees at those companies recommend their company is a good place to work. This can be compared to only 17% of employees at organizations where they do not feel their leadership is committed to their well-being. So this also matters for uh, re- attraction and retention of employees. And of course, um, we also see lower absentee rates from some of the best workplaces. So this is from Best Workplaces UK 2020 data. Um, So there's just a huge difference um, between the national average and the 100 best workplaces in the UK when it comes to absentee rates. And there is also a silver lining of the pandemic, which is that uh, these, from the same study in the UK, Best Workplaces 2020, they tracked over the last five years those top 100 workplaces and how many of them offered working from home options or flexible work time options. And you can see that the best workplaces, this was inclining, now with this pandemic, workplaces that may not have ranked in the top 100 are having to offer work from home options. Um, And so we may see across the board more of this in the future. HGA also did a study uh, this spring. So we invited 13 companies plus uh, put it out on social media. So there are additional one-off responses for a total of f- uh, over 5,000 respondents um, from across the United States, um, asking questions about how it feels to work from home, how people feel their productivity is, creativity, etc. So we found themes in these different categories. And as we go through, we'll highlight just a couple of stories from our results um, of what we're finding from uh, the folks who have been working at home. So from here, we're going to talk a bit a bit about some of the positive psychology research that's relevant to the work environment that can help us understand how we can foster thriving environments and do our own best work. So first looking at present moment awareness. Mindfulness in the workplace is very well researched. Um, There's been many studies and some of their findings have shown that mindfulness practices are correlated to less burnout, less psychological distress, which can include stress, anxiety, depression, fatigue, just general negative affect, um, an increase in work performance, less turnover, and even clients are more satisfied when employees are mindful. And I will give you a hint. um, Mindfulness doesn't have to always be a meditation practice, though at the beginning of this session, we did practice mindfulness with our grounding in moment. This is something that HGA across all of our offices has started practicing before we begin our meetings, um, to take just a moment, sometimes even 30 seconds, to breathe together and get here and stay focused on our work. Um, and you can also just do this in taking a mindful break. So this is one of the results of our work from home survey. We found that people uh, respond that they are more likely to take short quality breaks at home um, rather than taking a break in the workplace. They they ranked their breaks better and more effective at home than at work and we're hypothesizing that this is likely uh, due to a um, easier time getting into the moment in your break. So walking your dog and just having your mind uh, on that task um, rather than in the workplace where you're often sort of rushing from one meeting to the next and thinking about what you have to do next flow is also quite important to mindfulness and and present moment awareness so flow is when you're doing something everything else sort of falls away um, the time flies it can be related to the workplace or reading or activities such as biking or painting Flow is important because what happens to our brains is that the prefrontal cortex, which is the front of that thinking center that Haley outlined before, quiets down. And this matters because uh, your prefrontal cortex is where you have higher cognitive functions like consciousness, um, but also um, a uh, sense of self-consciousness and your inner critic lives here. So the part of you, excuse me, the part of you that may be focused on, um, you know, am I doing this task well enough? and over over criticizing yourself or uh, even having experiences of um, imposter syndrome that quiets down and all you do is focus on the task at hand. So how do you get into flow? Well you need a balance between skill level and challenge level in the task at hand. So if you're doing something that Um, your your skill level is far above and beyond Um, the, you know, this will be a task that gets bored really quickly and you'll stop caring about it. Flow lives in the balance between skill and challenge. If you do something that's more difficult than your skill level warrants, then you'll feel sensations of anxiety or frustration and will not experience flow and will have a harder time executing those tasks. So a quick recap for present moment awareness. Practice grounding in. It's a really simple way to practice this present moment awareness or mindfulness, um, especially before a phone call or or as you begin a meeting. Uh, Take quality breaks. Look at um, your breaks as an opportunity to be mindful of your task, even if it's as simple as I'm going to step to the kitchen and wash my dishes. Um, That is a great practice of mindfulness. And then find those opportunities of flow. Practice with that balance between skill level and challenge. Next, we'll look at emotional intelligence. So as Randy spoke uh, about emotional intelligence, there are several different domains. So the first is self-awareness, so being aware of your emotions and the impact they have on others. Self-regulation, your ability to control and manage your impulses and emotions. Internal motivation. So this is, you know, being driven only by external things such as more money or material rewards is not as um, informative in terms of your emotional intelligence than being intrinsically driven by uh, wanting to be improving yourself. Um, Having empathy, so understanding how other people are feeling and reacting to those emotions. And then finally, social skills. So treating others not just like you would like to be treated, but how they would like to be treated. So treating them with friendliness and respect and also practicing that empathy to identify the fact that not everyone has the same uh, goals when it comes to interacting with each other socially. So, Emotional intelligence at work is correlated to a lot of these positive outcomes. The research shows us that we can see an increase in job satisfaction, a greater commitment to our employer and career, less work-family conflict, more desire to be altruistic and to give back, better job performance, and less work-related stress. Now, also related here to um, emotional intelligence is the idea of savoring positive emotions. So um, when we feel negative emotions, we tend to um, get into that fight, flight, or flee feeling. Uh, We stop even being able to see positive things around us, and we start narrowing our field of vision. So we're only focusing on the negative. We become pessimistic very quickly when we're really sitting and wallowing in negative emotions. Um, Not to say it isn't important to feel them. It's very important to feel negative emotions um, and just allow them to happen, but identify, all right, this is what's happening. This is how I'm feeling. Um, Reflect on it and then see if you can continue moving through them positive emotions have the opposite effect so with a positive emotion you can actually broaden your cognition so when you're feeling and savoring a positive emotion that field of vision that was narrowed with negative emotions starts widening and you can all of a sudden see things that you never saw before um, which builds your opportunity to see even more things builds your capacity and resources you have a sense of greater well-being and then you're open to more experiences of positive emotion. So this is the broaden and build theory that Barbara Fredrickson uh, writes about. And of course, there are many impacts of positive emotions that are relevant to the workplace. So you have increased capacity for innovation, better memory and performance. You spend more time on creative tasks and any increase in happiness, whether short-term or long-term has been correlated to greater productivity. So what can we take away from emotional intelligence in the workplace? Well, practice building your emotional intelligence in those different domains, including a a very simple one, practice naming your emotions. So when you are experiencing something, identify it as, oh, this is, I'm feeling really frustrated right now. Um, This is also a great practice to do with young children uh, because we don't really teach emotional intelligence um, in school. And then savor those positive emotions as well. So, Haley, we'll take it over for
1: Relationships. Yes, thank you. So, there are a number of workplace practices that are really grounded in relationships that have been linked to positive impacts. Workplaces that best support positive relationships are those that care for colleagues as friends, you know, support each other, avoid blame, they're inspiring each other, and treat each other with respect, gratitude, trust, and integrity. And the impacts that those workplaces have been able to recognize are increased positive emotions, improved employee resilience, and bringing out the best in your employees. So many people in the U.S. have been self-isolating or minimizing interactions with anyone outside of their household for about 16 weeks since stay-at-home orders were, um, had begun in March. And this has created an environment of limited physical interactions that most have never experienced before. But our desire for social connection and strengthening relationships isn't just to combat loneliness. We need to interact with other people to do our jobs, exchange information um, and ideas, and and create social bonds, mentor others, and be mentored ourselves. And in our original research that Ariane introduced, we found that people miss the social life most about the office. Participants reported that it's not merely an emotional reaction, but also an operational one, The ability to effectively engage in face-to-face collaboration, serendipitously run into colleagues, immediately access team members and leadership and participate in the social rituals of the the office are the, the top features that people miss the most. Consequently, accomplishing tasks that require collaboration, connection with team members and access to leadership has also become more difficult. So the Global Workplace Experience Researchers Leisman have a deep benchmark of data on the office experience pre-pandemic that they can compare to new insights that they're gathering um, while the global workforce works from home. And it really complements the research that we've done. We can now see how different types of relationships may be better at the office or better at home, suggesting that a variety of spaces may be best to support the workforce of the future. Employees have been given the license to choose where and how to get their work done, and that trust is not easily revoked. So we see that choice will be a hallmark of the future workplace, and some activities may be better suited for either um, work or home. In this diagram, the pre-pandemic percentages of agreement that these activities are supported by the office are shown in gray. In blue are the percentages of agreement that these activities are supported by home, um, which was gathered during the pandemic. So these activities that are better supported by working from home are private conversations, business confidential discussions, video conferences, and telephone conversations. Now we see which activities have higher percentages of support from the office, and these include hosting visitors and clients, learning from others, informal social interaction, and using special equipment or materials. So as a recap for relationships, they're really critical for positive workplace experiences. So look for ways to connect, to really mitigate isolation um, and feelings of loneliness. Um, We also know that innovation or serendipity can't be scheduled and that some relationships are best supported by home and others best supported by the office.
2: So next we'll take a look at meaning. Victor Frankel is a psychotherapist who um, really founded the idea of seeking meaning and um, as a goal of therapy. Um, and so he talks about meaning being sought through three potential channels. One, your deeds or actions. So what you what you do with your time. Um, the second is experiencing values through a medium. So if you value um, beautiful, well, well-made things, perhaps you'll appreciate the craftsmanship in, um, you know. A handmade textile or visiting an art museum. Um, uh, or if you have a value of love, you know, experiencing that through deep personal relationships. Suffering is another form, and this is really meaningful coming from Viktor Frankl, who um, was one of the survivors um, from a concentration camp during the Holocaust. Uh, So he talks about suffering as a a way to unlock meaning in our lives, um, which I think is a a great opportunity to understand this next point, which is that we can choose our response to outside circumstances. So, you know, obviously he could not choose uh, the fact that he in the war was brought to a concentration camp, but he was able to Choose the response of deciding that he w- wanted to survive, um, and daily actions that he took in that um, in that mindset shift. So we can always choose our response, and that goes back also to the positive uh, savoring positive emotions. Um, or present moment moment awareness or all the things that we've been discussing. Um, When we're in a difficult time, we can look at are there opportunities for gratitude? Are there opportunities to choose to um, respond in a way that we know will be nourishing for us? Now, this also has become a part of the stages of grief. So up until very recently, the stages of grief were um, five stages that we see here, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Um, But very recently, David Kessler expanded on Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's grief model and added meaning as a new stage. And what this diagram illustrates is that the stages are not linear. You can move from one to another at any point in time. And of course, the way that we're we're, um you know we're having this conversation amidst a pandemic in which there are many layers of grief of losing out on opportunities to <clears throat> have a capstone experience at the end of a college experience or be not being able to see a grandchild or um, uh, then we layer on top of that, uh, the social justice civil rights movement that we're within and there's a whole layer of grief and trauma um, within so many communities of color. Uh, so this becomes a very relevant um, diagram is understanding where we all are on this grief cycle and that you know not everyone might be in a point of meaning. So if you sit in a, in a stage of meaning Within the pandemic, but someone else is with an anger, uh, just understanding and empathizing uh, with that person will take us much farther. I also wanted to speak to a research study that Google did on themselves. So they did the study in 2012. They were in search of what makes the perfect team. So they were looking for some combination of experience and expertise, and really what they found was not related to that at all. The best teams were ones that established group norms, communication norms, how they were going to work together. So that includes this list here, um, of which meaning is one. So meaning involves all team members feeling like they're making a difference. So they need to understand the context of their work. So just to recap meaning, explore how you find meaning. Is it through deeds, experiences, and or suffering? And then if you are running a team, if you are a team leader, make sure your team members have a sense of meaning by understanding how they fit into the bigger picture. An assembly line approach of doing tasks does not lead to a sense of meaning in the workplace.
1: So now we'll dive into the domain of achievement. So, Since the onset of the pandemic, workers around the world have, been, have lengthened their average workday um, due to the increase in remote work, um, limiting and even eliminating a commute, the blurring of boundaries between work and home, and new research shows that people are working on average two hours longer than usual. And perhaps not surprisingly, the U.S. has increased our average workday by almost 40%, adding an extra three hours. Employees who are working more may run the risk of experiencing burnout, and you may have experienced that that, um, phenomenon yourself. However, research from Gallup shows that when people feel inspired, motivated, and supported in their work, they do, in fact, do more work, but that work is significantly less stressful on their overall health and well-being. So it's not just the number of hours you're working, it's how you're managed and how you experience work during those hours that leads to improved well-being and mitigating burnout. So our own survey has supported an increase in productivity and individual creativity. We uh, found that about half of our respondents reported that they felt more productive and creative at home. And they attributed this to less distractions and more flexibility over their environment and the work hours that, um, that they experienced while working from home. So, as a recap for achievement, try to replicate the conditions where you feel most productive and creative, and work to set boundaries and healthy routines to focus on your personal well being to mitigate burnout. And thinking. <laughs> So this one's really tied to a lot of the other domains that we've, we've spoken about, you know, present moment awareness and emotional intelligence, because this one is really about the power that we all have over our own um, thoughts and the way that we approach the world. In a study conducted during another recent, <clears throat> excuse me, period of stress and uncertainty was the height of the 2008 financial crisis. Researchers studied if we could change our mindset when it comes to stress. And so, workers were taught just a simple three-step stress mindset shift um, technique, and after a month, those participants saw fewer negative health effects um, and increased their work performance. Um, the most important part of this is that the benefits were achieved without changing the amount of stress that they experienced. They weren't any less stressed, but they were experiencing their stress in an entirely new way, and as a result, were healthier and performed better. So here are those steps that you can use to change your own mindset when it comes to stress. Um, And you'll recognize a common thread here because first is to acknowledge and label the stress. Note what emotions you're experiencing and what you notice in your body. Um, If we remember back to that brain diagram, this is deliberately moving the neural activity from the fear center to the thinking center. The second step is to own your stress by connecting to the positive motivation or your personal value behind your stress. So you could think about it as, I'm stressed about blank because I care deeply about blank. And lastly, connect more deeply with the things that matter most and think about how you might change your response to better facilitate your goals and your purpose. So we can control our mindset when it comes to stress, but we can also control our mindset when it comes to our growth and our outlook. So if you have a fixed mindset, you believe that things can't change and that you're either good at something or you're not and you really stick with what you know. But a growth mindset is grounded in the belief that abilities can be changed and developed over time. Growth mindsets shape our ability to create um, innovative risk-taking cultures and have happier employees. So even though it takes hard work, this mindset can be taught through praise, focusing on effort, and by teaching or learning about neuroplasticity and the brain's ability to change. In a study of several Fortune 1000 companies, researchers examined the implications of an entire organization's mindset and how company-wide beliefs influenced workers' satisfaction and the perception of culture. In the growth mindset workplaces, employees believe that the company actually fostered more innovation, collaboration, and risk-taking. And those employees have also um, have higher levels of trust, ownership, commitment, and loyalty to that company. And supervisors also then view those employees as more committed to learning and growth, more innovative, and more collaborative. And finally, as our recap on thinking, Take control over your mindset by labeling your stress, connect to the positive motivation behind your stress, think more deeply about your actions, and practice having a growth mindset.
3: Thanks, Haley. Well, we have now reached our call to action slide. So, what we would ask is that each of you just take a moment and what is one commitment you will make to support your well being as you leave today? And if you feel comfortable, you can share it with a colleague or a family member. But we are asking you to make that commitment to take one thing,
2: So I see um, while you're writing, uh, we don't have any questions yet in the question and answer, but we are transitioning to Q&A. So feel free to type a question in question and answer. And if you um, uh, are comfortable, we can invite you to speak the question also uh, for the panel. The question about sharing slides—we'll just confer as a um, as a group and discuss, uh, but
1: we'll likely be able to share some slides back. Yes.
0: Um, would. Uh,
2: Let's see. We do have a question here. Um, Jillian, would you like to speak your question? Or are you comfortable with us um, inviting you to speak? Okay, no. <laughs> All right. So the question, um, I'll, I'll ask this of uh, Randy and Lori, um, what are some steps to take to encourage others to take action?
3: Well, I, well, I think the first thing is, is to, to kind of be a role model. Uh, first and foremost, so so it really when it comes to well being, we always say is it, it starts with you, and um, you know uh, when when others are seeing that on a daily basis, they're more inclined to to do that themselves. So we call that the ripple effect, and I think part of it is is just slowly but surely. If you're looking at implementing this into your workplace, it's just slowly but surely, not not overwhelming people, but just starting with one or two things. And starting to see that, what we have found is is that um, w- these skills of well being are, are, are reinforcing. So once they start, and they start to experience that. Um, it, it's really reinforcing because they get the benefit of that. So so that that's how I would answer that. L- Lori, anything else to add?
4: Not yet. I'll think about that one though. That's a good, really good question because really all we can change is ourselves. Um, just like Randy said, but I'm trying to think in the in the terms of of um, so we work with a lot of teachers in elementary schools, and one of the things that they've done is, um, just like Randy said, they they uh, they incorporate it themselves and then they share it with their students. So I'm thinking particularly one one teacher who um, there, she had done mindful movement with her with her students all year. Um, aka yoga but they didn't never call it yoga she called it mindful movement and when they were doing a fire drill or a or a tornado i think it was a tornado drill she said she watched the fear on all these students faces and she didn't really know um, she didn't know how to help all the other students but with her students she said she said she said, my students, think about it like doing child's pose. You're just going back and you're just, you're taking a little break. You're taking a rest. And she watched her students leave this tornado drill with a really sense, this real sense of calm, whereas everybody else was still really stressed out. So, so encouraging, um, helping others learn through your modeling. And, uh, but, but you have to start with you, like Randy said.
2: And that was part of why we asked the commitment question in that way, because if you're practicing your own mindfulness um, and, and to deepen your own well-being, uh, that will also have a ripple effect in all of your relationships, in your work outputs, um, as we discussed. Um, we have a question about um, recommending how to how would we recommend uh, that um, one can assist or support others who are going through the grief cycle?
3: Well, from my perspective, my background is in, is as a mental health provider. So I've worked in the mental health field for, for over a decade. And one of the things that I always say is, is to first to ask permission, right? So you're always asking, would it be all right if I asked you or, 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 you know, if you need my support, because too many times I think we think, well, you know, we're, we're just going to do that. And, And for some people, they may not want that at that moment in time. So all I would say is, is making sure that you're asking, asking that individual permission, especially when it comes to the grieving process. And I really like the diagram that, that was shown because it, it looks at the stages and, and just knowing that people are going to be in different places. And um, I always tell people that, right, is, is grief is there is no timeline. It's in your own time in your own way. So that would be my recommendation of uh, wanting to help someone, even though you may want that individual at that moment in time may not want that, or they may. So by asking permission, it, g- it gives you the permission to, if they want help, to then help them with whatever it is that they're they're needing at that moment in time.
4: Yeah, I'd also add. Oh, can I add something? Yeah, go ahead. I, I think that um, being there, just being there, listening, being willing to listen, because I think often they need to process, and. Um, they don't, they're not asking for you to fix anything cause it can't be fixed. Grief is one of those things like Randy just said that, that everybody experiences in a different way. So I think just, just actually be, it's it just, it sounds so easy, but not everybody's comfortable with that. And I think it's a really important thing to, to offer to just to be there with them, take a walk, go up for a cu- cup of tea or a cup of coffee or what, you know, it's harder to do now given where we are, but, um, but you can still walk safely, six, six feet apart
2: you <laughs> And from a workplace perspective, uh, supporting your colleague who you know is going through grief doesn't have to look like um, anything big. I think the examples that were just talked about are appropriate, um, but also even just sending a card and saying "I'm thinking of you" or um, uh, you know, there's those great Emily McDowell uh, empathy cards that um, that just talk about grief in the like very real, very raw way that that grief is experienced. So um, even just making a small gesture can can go a long way. And that can build that relationship that you have in the workplace and help you both work together um, more effectively. Um, We have a question about um, how to expand your emotional intelligence. Are there some good resources for how to um, expand that?
3: Yeah, no, we, that's an area that we spend a lot of time on. And actually, um, in in higher education, you know, one of the things that we look at is, is employers. Those are I think there's recent research that came out as the top uh, you know, out of the top five skills that employers are looking for, four fall under the emotional intelligence competency. So we're really making sure that we're promoting those things. And the one thing about emotional intelligence is that it is, you, you can train it, you can increase it with practice. Um, there's some outstanding books. I mean, Daniel Goleman is a leading researcher in that area. Mark Brackett just wrote an, an outstanding book called The Permission to Feel. He's the director of the Emotional Intelligence Center out of Yale. Um, so th- there's, a, there's a lot of good books out there. There's also some assessments that you can take. I, I actually uh, uh, give some, some of the students at our university or even leaders, there's, there's assessment that I, I, I am able to provide and score to help people look at where they are and areas to improve.
4: Yeah, hey, Randy, can you share the ruler? acronym just yeah, briefly
3: yeah, ruler mark brackets uh he, he uses a ruler and it's to to recognize your emotions um to understand what you're feeling and then he talks about labeling it and then being able to express it and then being able to regulate it so he uses an acronym that that we really like uh, um there's another um uh, psychologist in um uh, mindfulness practitioner um uh, Tara Brock that uses the RAIN acronym, which is also being able to, to be emotionally intelligent surrounding emotions, too, and that's being able to recognize, accept, investigate, and nurture.
4: Yeah, thanks. I think those are important, and, and then they can have names to, to be able to re- look up on their own.
2: I will also make a recommendation because I did this course myself. Um, There is a course called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, which, you know, the title wouldn't really seem like it's focused on emotional intelligence, but um, it does actually feel like um, what you learn in that course, which is a several week, um, several, two hours at a time sessions, uh, you practice meditation practices, um, and you practice recognizing, you know, how am I feeling right now? Um, That was one of the biggest impacts on me and in identifying being able to really recognize and feel my emotions and then identifying it in others too. So you also learn how to pause after you're feeling a immediate response of oh, angry, frustration, whatever it may be, rather than reacting immediately you pause first and then you know you have space to give uh room for empathy and realize this other person may be going through something challenging and i also mentioned that because lori is a mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher <laughs> um, and i don't know if you have any virtual courses that you're offering right now but um that the group might be interested in
4: we're actually just wrapping one up but we okay. will be offering it again
2: great all right, one final question. Um, uh, the question is, I, I'm having a bit of an identity crisis as I'm not getting out to do things, wear nicer clothes, and I'm at home. I will be working for home for at least six more months. Any suggestions? I've heard many people are also feeling
4: this. Great question. It's a great question. I, I would start. I would start with being self-compassionate towards yourself. Um, be kind to yourself because th- this is not easy times. This is. It, there's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be. You're going to be feeling the gamut of of emotions, and allowing it, it, the you know. Ariane mentioned MBSR, mindfulness based stress reduction, and really to be able to to sense what you're feeling and and accept it. Without trying to change anything, there's a saying, what we resist persists. And if we try to resist, 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 it continues to happen. So like, for example, don't think about the pink elephants. What do you think of? Pink elephants, right? So it's just inviting them in, welcoming them into your practice. And then, believe it or not, they dissipate. Because nothing lasts. Good feelings don't last, bad feelings don't last. They just don't last. So just being kind, loving, self-compassionate to yourself and to others, and to others. That, that's what I would, I would start with. Uh, Haley, you mentioned in a past presentation
2: we gave together the importance of creating um, barriers between your workspace and your home. Do you wanna maybe speak to that here? That might be relevant yeah. too.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important at this time because, you, you know, it, there's these lines are so blurred. And so um, there's one way to think about creating a boundary crossing activity, um, you know, and so we, we maybe had that when we were going to a physical office where our commute time or, you know, you were getting ready in the morning and you, you left your house and there was this kind of boundary crossing between your work, or your home self rather, and then your work self. And so we still need to create those for ourselves, even when we're at home. So even though you may not physically be going to another location, you know, some routine is it savoring your cup of coffee and taking a moment, you know, to, to reflect or be mindful in the morning or journaling, um, you know, some activity that you can sort of adopt into a routine that becomes, okay, now I'm, I'm finished with that and I'm going to, you know, transition into work self. And then also at the end of your day. I think that's really important to also transition to when is when is the end of your work day and when are you transitioning back to your home self.
4: Mm-hmm. And locations can help too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Having a specific location in your home that you only work and, and it's hard. We all, you know, I, I'm joking. I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on our screen porch right now, which is a table. It's my office. Um, we've been, you know, we've got couches here. We, uh, it, so, yeah, it's, it's difficult to do, but it's, I think it's an important thing to do.
2: And then we do have one final question, which feels very related to what we just talked about. Um, As the slide showed, Americans seem to be glorifying working more and being so busy. How can we lead our company to promote a better balance and not push to overwork? Um, One of the things that I I think if your company is one that doesn't see the value of not overworking yet, um, some of the research that we presented uh, about um, the positive outcomes of focusing on employee well-being might be something to bring to the table. And actually there are more uh, studies that look at the economic impacts of that as well. Um, In fact, some of those same studies. So when we share those slides and you can see the resources at the bottom, take a look at those actual original resources because this is um, bringing a case to uh, your employer of, look, it's a good business decision to not have us overwork and burn out. Um, That might be a place to start the conversation. Do you, any others want to add anything to that?
3: Yeah. Well, when we talk to businesses, that, that's what we always say is, is number one, more is not always better, better is better. And, <laughs> and really investing in your employees' well-being is, is, I mean, if you're really interested in, you know, having your employees be more productive, more creative, better problem solvers. And at the end of the day, research has shown is investing in your employees' well-being helps the bottom line. Right? So, so, I mean, and that is, that, that's what the research shows.
2: Well, thank you all for joining us today. Uh, That wraps up the session and we will send it out via email um, afterwards as well. So thank you. Thank you all.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. And thank you to Haley, Ariane, Randy, and Lori for helping us understand the science behind how being mindful can contribute to our emotions. I'm so glad that we all now know how to thrive at work regardless of where you are and what's going on around you. To stay up to date with all the insights from HGA, please visit wwwhdacom slash insights or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. If you like our podcast, please subscribe on iTunes and share with your friends or on social media. We'd love to hear your thoughts and questions. To keep this conversation going, please share on any of our social channels under the post for this episode. If you're interested in talking to me or any of our guests at any time, please reach out to contact information provided on our website. I'm Melissa Pacey, and I can't wait to talk again during our next episode.